Hello, I'm Bill Moyers, and I'm holding in my hand what has been called one of the most daring books of the 21st century, Bracing, Unrelenting. The title is Democracy in Black, How Race Still Enslaves the American Soul, and it breathes with prophetic fire. Its power comes because the author does not begin with pristine principles or with assumptions about our inherent goodness. Rather, its view of democracy, as he writes, emerges out of an unflinching encounter with lynching trees, prison cells, foreclosed homes, young men and women gunned down by police, and places where hope, unborn, had died. Democracy in Black is rich in history and bold in opinion, and inconvenient truths leap from every page. For example, and I'm quoting the book again, black people must lose their blackness if America is to be transformed. But of course, white people get to stay white. The book opens in Ferguson, Missouri, with the author talking to three dynamic young women, young black women, newly born to activism. And it closes in the intimacy of the reader's heart, where each of us wrestles with the question of whether we can indeed change the habits of racism and create together a new politics based on a revolution in values. The author is Eddie Glaude, Jr., and he's with me now. Eddie Glaude was raised in the Deep South in Moss Point, Mississippi, and still remembers the Ku Klux Klan burning a cross at the fairground. He's now a professor of religion and African-American studies at Princeton University, where he also chairs the Center for African-American Studies. This is his third book, and he's a member in good standing of the black establishment, which he rigorously calls to account in Democracy in Black. Professor Glaude, welcome. Well, thank you for having me. Why did you start this book in Ferguson? Why did you go out there after the terrible incident there? I thought it was um, a kind of spark, right? the spark that could, in fact, uh, inaugurate uh, a substantive change in, in African-American politics in particular and perhaps uh, another dimension of fundamental change in American politics more generally. I had to see it apart from all of the cameras. I wanted to see the young folk and see what they were doing on the ground because I thought, um, like like Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, like the young folk of of the 60s. SNCC. Yeah, SNCC, you know, that they that these could be, in fact, the shock troops of the next phase of the struggle for democracy in this country. So, What, what did you take away from that? Were your, were your expectations met? What I came away with uh, was um, the, the extraordinary courage that emerges out of particular circumstances, that it explodes. You don't know what human beings are capable of. Um, that these young folk would dare to stare down uh, the weaponry that we saw on television and that they would do so in a way that wasn't captured by the old uh, traditional theater of civil rights marches where some black preachers at the front. Uh, but these were young folk, many of them coming out of, uh, of the hood, quote-unquote, right? That these, were, these weren't middle-class, respectable people, as, as, we, as we say. These were, these were young folk who had been struggling to find jobs, young folk who uh, were uh, often... T- had tattoos on their arms, earrings in their ears, right? Where do they stand in this long story of struggle that you write about? Not just Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, -hmm. but all the way back to, say, Harriet Tubman. I like to see them as part of this this extraordinary black freedom tradition, and more specifically, uh, the black radical tradition, 
what we've witnessed over the last few decades, Bill, is, the, is it our all out, an all-out assault on the black radical imagination. And that is that our, our idea of what constitutes legitimate forms of political dissent in this country has been so limited, it has been so narrowed to party electoral politics, to um, tweet here or Facebook post there or um, some march here or there. Um, but, you know, the idea of, of, of everyday ordinary Americans stepping out of the, the established frame for political dissent and daring to challenge the state up front with their bodies, with their minds and with their mouths, they stand in that tradition. Uh, oftentimes they've been cut off from it because of the narrative, so they have to re reinvent it. Because we tell ourselves a story of African-American politics that's always, at least it seems to me, that's always kind of bound by this idea that America is the shining city on the hill. But white Americans prefer the Martin Luther King model, the oh, Martin Luther yeah. King of the march, the Martin Luther King of nonviolence to those radical practitioners of an imagination that would go beyond just collaboration with whites. Yeah, you know, of course they would. Right, because there's a, it allows folk to be comfortable in, in, in the very thing that's at the heart of the problem of the country. What is at the heart of the, the problem of the country? The value gap. Value gap. The value gap. You know, we talk about the achievement gap. We talk about the empathy gap. We talk about the wealth gap. And the value gap is this. That is the belief that white people matter more than others. And to the extent to which that belief animates our social arrangements, our political practices, our economic realities, under different material conditions, as long as that belief obtains, democracy will always be in abeyance in this country. But you write that this value gap, the belief that white lives matter more than black lives, goes all the way back to the foundation, as Martin Luther King, as he said toward the end of his life, that white supremacy right. is the great barrier to democracy. Right. But... You know, the, the idea is that we have to tell the truth. And, and you know, when I, tell, when I tell people about the value gap, right, you know, and, I, and, I, and I'm thinking about this in light of Black Lives Matter, right? So the phrase calls to mind this assertion on the part of these young folk that they matter, that black people matter. Well, I believe the price of that ticket has already been paid. I don't need to assert that I matter. I know that. And these young folk who exhibited all of this courage and boldness and imaginative, imagination and creativity in the context of, of, their, of their rebellion, of their protest, they know that. What who doesn't know it? Uh, the folks who believe that they matter more. So the assertion of black lives matter is really white people don't matter more than us. I'm trying to speak to the fact from the very founding, from the very founding that the principles of democracy have been uh, colored, disfigured undermined by this assumption that because of the color of your skin, you, you, you should be accorded some, something different. An assumption written into the basic documents of the country, right? Mm -hmm. Into the basic institutions of, of, you know, our founding fathers owning slaves. Right, right. And this, this is the radical claim at the heart of the book, that I reject the idea that what at the heart of racism, at the heart of the problem, racial problem in this country, that there's a gap between our ideals and our practices. This is the 1944 Gurner Myrdal formulation from the American Swedish dilemma. social scientist. Right, that the problem with America is that we don't live up to our creed. And usually that's and who the, the region that bears the brunt of that problematic is all too often the South. And as I tell my students all the time, Flint, Michigan is not in the South. 
Um, but this idea that the problem that, that is gap between our ideas and practices, that's all we need to do is align them. And I say, but, you know, what if it's the case that we've built the country true? That it's not a gap between our ideals and practices, that the value gap is absolutely essential to who we take ourselves to be. And what our task is, um, is to kind of retrieve the language of liberty and freedom and equality, to remove it from this idea of American exceptionalism and give it new life, in which every human being is accorded dignity, no matter their zip code or the color of their skin. How did you become who you are given where you grew up in the long and lengthening shadow of white supremacy, mm. uh, where your life didn't matter to the powers that be as much as their own children's. How did you become who you are? My dad was the second African-American hired at the post office in Pascagoula, Mississippi. So my dad, knowing he had precocious kids, moved us over and moved us to the west side of town. And I was playing with my Tonka truck outside as we were moving in, and old, an older white guy, neighbors, called me the N-word. And I grabbed my Tonka truck and ran inside. And I saw my dad's eyes, and I saw the anger and the rage that I had been so familiar, that was so familiar to me. And he ran outside, and he handled his business. I don't know what he said to the guy. I know the for sale sign was up pretty soon. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, it was an indication of how my dad raised us. I remember when I was in the fourth grade, a teacher was, I thought, harassing me, and I got up and I yelled, you're a racist, and I walked out of the classroom. And I thought I was, I was deathly afraid of what's going to happen to me when I got home. And my father, this man who rarely said a word, who rarely showed emotion, said, what did, what did she say? What did she do? And I told him, and he said, every time someone says something like that to you, you do the same thing. And then I went to Morehouse. Morehouse College. Morehouse College. And I, so I was dipped in deep waters of, of, of race men. Uh, so I was kind of educated in this space. Did your father and mother talk to you about white supremacy? Did Not they at ever? all. Not at all. I didn't even know SNCC, was, SNCC had, had a presence in my hometown growing up. The Stokely Carmichael, who later would become Kwame Touré, and Ivanhoe Donaldson, who just recently passed, that they were in my hometown. I didn't know that till I got to graduate school. As radical activists? As radical activists. I didn't know that there was a, a movement to, to desegregate the pools, the, the swimming, swimming pool. pools in my town. I didn't know that. I was always integrated. You know, I was going to the optimist clubs. I was playing Dungeons and Dragons with Ron Krodzinski, right? It was an existence that was, that, that in some ways I integrated Moss Point in, in, in these kinds of spaces. But, you know, the, but I remember when Eyes on the Prize came on and my father just jumped up and started cussing and walked the, out. The PBS series? Yeah, the P, when it had first came out, you know, when it first came on, yeah. on PBS. It, it, and my, I remember my dad watching and just started cussing and got up and walk out, walked out. My dad was very clear he didn't like white people, very clear. Um, when they shot out the sliding door at the back of the house, kids behind us shot out the sliding door with a pellet gun. My dad responded with a 12-gauge shotgun and blew off a limb of their oak tree and said, shoot back here again. But there was no, outside of me knowing that he was rageful, that he didn't suffer white people easily, um, but only, in, your, in your own home, you didn't discount your life. No, I was busy listening to Al Green, having fish fries on, on, on every Friday because they were devout Catholics, um, kind of reveling in a cultural space uh, that isn't obsessed 
with what white folks think. And it's, it's, it's really an empowering experience. And then I left and went to Morehouse and then had my first conversion experience. There. How so? I read Malcolm X's autobiography written with Alex Haley. And I said, ah, the language for my father's rage. I got it. I see it now. And it's at that point that the analysis of the world changed. Everything changed. I began to reread my experiences back home in a very different way. Now that you've taken this long look at the history of racism in America and and, and seen yourself in the context of it, your life, your privilege, mm-hmm. your teaching, the politics of today, you conclude that we are in crisis. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, a crisis of imagination, right? I mean, we can talk about the fact that my colleagues at Princeton have said that we're no longer a democracy, we're an oligarchy. Uh, we can talk about the, 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 the evil levels of inequality that define not only the United States but the world generally, uh, where uh, the top one-tenth of a percent is garnering all of the, the gains while the 99 percent are struggling to imagine uh, uh, tomorrow. And that's not just simply black and brown folk. All of this is a reflection of the ugliness of the world in which we inhabit. But because the imagination is the battleground, Many of us can't see beyond the reality of now. It's almost as if one of the most insidious dimensions of our current politics is to arrest our curiosity about what could be otherwise. And so we find ourselves stuck with these choices, stuck with uh, a billionaire as the voice of, of the locked out Trump, stuck with Hillary Clinton, as if we can't imagine otherwise. Um, so it is a crisis um, that I think, um, at its core, uh, uh, if we don't resolve, we will not survive. You don't think the prominence of Obama as president of the United States is symbolic enough to affect these habits of racism that you write about so powerfully in your yeah, book. I, I, think it, I think it has some bearing. I mean, it, it, I would be wrong to suggest that the symbolic significance of his presidency will not have an impact. My son came of age, I mean, he, when 2008, I mean, he was a baby, basically. Now he's a, an activist at Brown University. So he grew up with an African-American in, in the White House, but he also came of age politically with Ferguson, with Sandra Bland, right, with Laquan McDonald. And your son is not free of the intrusion of the world we're talking about. Tell me that story about your son. So I had just recently got a call saying that I had been elected uh, the president of the American Academy of Religion, the largest body of scholars of religion in the world. Country boy, made good, right? And um, then I, I get a call from my son an hour later, and I could hear it in his voice. I said, what's wrong? And he says, uh, I was in the park doing an assignment for my urban ethnography class with my girlfriend. And I'm sitting there taking notes, and a police cruiser drives by slowly. And then he hits a sudden U-turn and turns on his lights and drives up on the sidewalk. He gets out, he flashes the flashlight at my feet, then at the bushes, and then in my face. And I say, officer, can I help you? And the officer says, who are you and why are you here? And he says, I'm a brown student, and I'm doing, my, doing an assignment for my urban ethnography class. And the officer says, well, the park closes at 930. And he says, yes, sir. I know, but it's only 730. 
And as he's saying that, the other officer, his partner, comes around the cruiser with his hand on his weapon. And they both lean into him and say the park closes at 9.30. And he puts his hands up, taps his girlfriend, who had her headphones on, and says, we don't want any trouble. We're leaving. We're leaving now. We're leaving now. So his body was in the wrong place. And I'm sitting there, and I'm hearing my baby tell this story. He's my only child. And, you know, James Baldwin writes in The Uses of the Blues, he says, whatever the Negro problem is, or whatever we think the Negro problem is, it is basically the effort of Negro parents to keep from taking root what white people believe about our children, to keep it from taking root in the soul. And so I had to figure out what to say to my baby because I could have lost him. Now, one white parent in this country has to go through that. I don't. If think. he had been angry, you would have lost him. Yeah, if he had an Eric Garner day and said, I'm not going to take this anymore. I probably either lost him or I had to go up and and and, and post bail for him or something. Um, so at that moment, I, I had to figure out what I was going to say to him, right? Because at that point, you can go internal and focus on the internal wound, right? So instead of having him go inward, I just simply said, now imagine what would have happened, how often you would have to experience that if you lived in a different zip code. Because you have to take it from going inside and turn it outward so that you can engage in this justice work, right? And then it wound up being the case that he was one of the organizers of student protests at Varel. Turned his own anger into something positive. Right. This justice. Hard to do. Yeah. So here's a young man whose political vision, shaped by a black man in the White House, but whose existential life, his experiences have been, have been overdetermined by the reality of black suffering. Right, all around him, and because he's aware, he sees it. I mean, if you think we saw the expansion of the black middle class and the black upper class, right, uh, in the '90s, right, at the same time that we were seeing, in interesting sorts of ways, an expansion of the black poor, right, extreme poverty, right. Um, so, if you think that's because we have uh, a Robert Johnson or an Oprah Winfrey or a Jay Z or Beyonce, that somehow that's changed the conditions of the most vulnerable in our communities then I got a bridge in Brooklyn I want to sell you. I just read this morning that the rate of unemployment among blacks is actually higher today than it was in 1954. Yeah, absolutely. 38% of black children are now growing up in poverty. In my home state of Mississippi, 50% are growing up up in poverty. You look at the housing bubble collapse, 240,000 homes lost in in black America. Now the wealth gap between white and black is 13 times that. White wealth is 13 times that of black wealth. Uh, you look at the rate, what has been the impact and the effect of mass incarceration in our communities. Uh, what has it meant for three strikes, you're out? What has it meant mandatory sentencing? What has it meant broken windows policing? Uh, when you look at places like D.C. and places like Philadelphia and places like the South, uh, how many young African-American men and women find themselves in some, so- in some shape, form, or fashion uh, involved with the carceral system, the carceral state. And then when you think about this public, this, 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 this incredible ritual of public grieving of these black parents and family members and friends having to bury their loved ones who've been killed at the hands of the police, all of this is on the watch of the first black president. See, this is what's happened. The scripts that we've had, had before 
um, the underlying reality has changed so fundamentally that the traditional scripts don't don't align. So the fact that we have black people in high places that doesn't that doesn't really change the you fundamental reality. But you don't lay these, do you, at Obama's feet? I don't lay it at his feet. I lay it at the feet of of of, of an economic philosophy that has captured Democrats and Republicans. Talk about that. So look, I mean, we we know the story of what the DLC, the Democratic Leadership Council, what we know that story. That was the group that Bill Clinton helped to create back in the 1990s to move Democrats toward money, toward corporate <laughs> power and Wall Street because exactly. they were tired of being seen as New Deal and called, uh, you know, the, the big spenders. Right. And we and we know what that meant. They said, well, in some ways, Democrats have to distance themselves from their traditional base. They have to contain labor and they have to contain, contain black folk. Uh, and what has that meant? I mean, that has meant triangulation. That has, mean, that has meant taking the policies of the Republican Party. That has meant becoming cozy uh, with Wall Street. That has meant turning one's back on the most vulnerable in this country. Um, and so Democrats bear the blame and the responsibility, right? In some ways, I like to say that the first neoliberal president was Jimmy Carter. When we talk about austerity and... and, 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 and well, you, you, you go further than that. You, you, you say that uh, Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton and Barack Obama were what um, Herman Melville called confidence men. Yeah. What do you mean by that? That's three Democrats in a row. Yeah, selling the snake oil of hope and change. That somehow we were, by electing them, they were going to change the frame. That they would uproot the value, that they would close the value gap and uproot those habits. If you try to, if we locate white supremacy or racism or the value gap only with people who are loud racist, folk who are running around with hoods and and yelling the N-word, then you're going to miss it. Right. We learn race by just simply walking around New York City, walking around Princeton, just the way the space is organized. We're in hab- we're we're uh, are being socialized into the habits of race. Uh, and so if you can come in and, 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 and dance around the edges. And these people made all of these promises and they knew they could not be be, be elected without black voters. African-Americans came out for President Obama in, in 2008 at 95 percent. And then when, as a constituency, we said, speak to our suffering, give us concrete policies. I can't be the president of black America. I'm the president of all America. Nobody asked you to be the president of black America. You did not expect him to be the president of black America? We expected him to speak to a constituency that voted for him at 95%. See, this is the thing. Because of the way in which race works, it distorts how we participate in the democratic process. And these Democrats, it's a shrewd hypocrisy. It's a shrewd hypocrisy. They, they play on our fears because they say, look at those other guys. Look how much worse it would be. And then they don't have to deliver a damn thing. You're right. The most disturbing example of our inability to talk substantially about race is how President Obama handles the subject. He constantly contorts to avoid the racial landmines of American politics. Yeah, he does it all the time. Right. I just have these moments in my head. Remember when John Edwards was running for the presidency in 2007, Senator Edwards at the time, um, and his big mantra was poverty. And Edwards, of course, got caught out there for all the things that he did. And, and there was this huge press conference in New Orleans. Edwards was, was going to endorse Obama. 
He was endorsing, and Obama said, poverty is going to be on my agenda for the rest of the campaign, and then we didn't hear another word. Right. There was a moment in the, in, the, in the election cycle. They moved from New Hampshire and Iowa and New Hampshire, and they're going to South Carolina. He puts together his black think tank, and all of a sudden these issues, we just heard it recently, black folk are on the national scene. We're talking about black issues. Once you get out of South Carolina, got to bank to the, to the center. And then you get into office, and then we have to assume that they're going to do whatever they're going to do behind closed doors without any level of accountability. We just got to trust that they're going to do it. Now, there are people listening to us who will say there are other constituencies that any politician has to balance as he walks the tightrope of American uh, pluralism. Yeah, and I wonder if they would say that with regards to the LGBT community and how, how much he's been pushed in that regard. I wonder if they would say that with regards to the Lily Ledbetter bill. I wonder if they would say that with regards to other constituencies that have made uh, uh, interesting inroads in his campaign. Would they say that to the fact that he bailed out Wall Street? Are you saying that the black voters who put Obama in office haven't been pushing hard enough or consistently enough? Well, this is part of the challenge, right? There's been a, there's been a kind of reticence, right? There's been a reticence because of the, the you know, the, the right-wing backlash uh, he's the most uh, threatened president ever. Uh, don't want to give fodder to, to, to the right wing in terms of their attack and, and, and obstruction of his policies. Uh, but, but there's a sense in which uh, some folks have, um, have muted their voices in relation to President Obama. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, whatever you think about my position on President Obama, whatever you think about his policies over the last eight years, the fact remains is he's about to go home. And we have to deal with the ruins. He's going home. And when you look at communities like Chicago and you look at communities like Philadelphia, you look at a city like Detroit, you turn your attention to the Delta, you turn your attention to Houston, you look at what's happening in black communities and brown communities around the country, we have to attend to the ruins. And the symbolic significance of President Obama, it's over. Now what are you going to do? One of your moving passages is about how the president responded to the killing of Trayvon Martin. You say we should – he said we should ask ourselves as individuals and as a society how we can prevent future tragedies like this. As citizens, that's a job for all of us. Now, what's wrong with that? Right. So, so I, you know, it's a nice way of talking, but when you actually get to the content of it, right, it becomes a matter of our hearts only, Right. Or you get uh, the the thing that was was interesting about that, that that press conference is that he dropped a seed for my brother's keeper, right? Which is the organization, right? Which is the kind of his initiative around mentoring uh, for black and brown uh, young men, uh, and has been pushed by by others to include women in that. But again, that's just a private public partnership aimed at speaking to structural realities that reproduce poverty and precarity for a particular community of concern. So, you know, he said he wanted to look at uh, stand-your-ground laws. What happened to that? Uh, he said uh, uh, we need to uh, uh, increase training. Whenever you hear about increasing training for police, you should wonder and worry, as my colleague Naomi Mirakawa talks about, because that just simply means more money, more funding for police. It doesn't translate in changing the nature of policing itself. Um, and so when you look at the content of what he offered in response to a wannabe cop, who killed a young kid, right? Or in response to uh, police officers choking Eric Garner for Lucy, a cigarette, 
it was a Band-Aid for, for, for a bullet wound, for a gunshot wound. Um, and we're supposed to be satisfied. I'm not satisfied. You say he, Obama, joined Bill Clinton and Jimmy Carter, other Democratic confidence men, who presented themselves as people who would challenge the racial order of things, but neither change the racial habits at the heart of the country. Right. Can a president do that? Yes, I think so. Can change the racial habits at the heart I think they can of use, history? I think they could put the bull, use their bully pulpit, Bill, and really force uh, the country uh, to confront the way the habits evidence themselves. We did it in the military. You know, when the military was segregated, uh, we did it, uh, and it's probably one of the most integrated institutions we have in the United States. We could do it with public education if we were committed to educating all of our children. What would it mean for the president to say, right, historically we have double-digit unemployment in communities because we have had historically a dual labor market in this country? There's a reason why... uh, the unemployment rate for white Americans is at 4.3%. For black Americans now, it's at 10.1%, right, unadjusted. There's a reason for this, and it's not because black people are lazy. Some are, because we're human beings. So we have lazy human beings. How will we address this? And do it in a way that isn't the equivalent of, you know, asking a, a, an academic like myself or, John, or equivalent of John Hope Franklin to lead a commission on a conversation about race that's so heavily politicized that we can't get anything out of it. And I'm thinking about Clinton's conversation on race during the Bill Clinton years. So part of it is to take specific instances. In my, area, my, in my mind, there are three areas. It's education, right, it's jobs, right, and it's criminal justice. Three issues where we see the habits of, that, that undergird and sustain the value gap, and we address them directly. Because many black kids go to bad schools. Right. You would change the school system. Right. But right now, what do we have? We have uh, the kind of greed that you've been talking about for all of these years. Um, Because what we see is the the, the effort on the part of most folk is just simply the transfer of public dollars into private hands. They're not really interested in educating our kids. And they're balancing the budgets of their municipalities on the backs of school districts in black and brown communities. And so they're not interested in educating our children. And you say that Black folks suffer more when these austerity measures are passed. It could, could it be something else? I mean, you talk about your father going to work for the post office. I know many black folks who, whose first jobs that paid anything were with the United States Post Office. But with, with the Republicans and Democrats, too, cutting uh, government, it, there's, there's more than just an austerity policy at work there. No, right? absolutely. I mean, you know, growing up in Mississippi, when my dad was hired at the post office, that's high cut. Yeah. I mean, it afforded us a middle-class life. Uh, he put his kids through college as a result of that. Think about the middle class in a place like Washington, D.C., the black middle class in, the pl- in a place like Washington, D.C., that's worked for every aspect of, go- of government. And then you see, right, the disappearance of private sector jobs, those manufacturing jobs. But as they've tried to starve the beast, as the narrative of big government is bad has taken root, we've seen a shrinking of government. Uh, and those public sector jobs are disappearing. And as well, there's an attack on public sector unions. So the security that the unions uh, provided for those jobs, right, uh, they've, been de- they've been weakened. Um, 
And, and, and what's so striking about that is that in the moment in which we were asking and clamoring President, for President Obama to, to put forward a, a bolder stimulus package, he starts debt-mongering, right? He, sits, he starts worrying about the debt and starts cutting, freezing wages and cutting jobs, disproportionately impacting uh, uh, black and brown communities that rely on public sector jobs. And you say that black communities around the country today uh, are in deep, deep distress. They're invisible unless there's an outburst as in Ferguson or Baltimore or Flint. Right. Our communities are are invisible because the people who inhabit them are disposable. And does that go back to your original thesis that black lives are less valuable than white lives? In policy and in practice. I, I really do believe that. I mean, think about it. People are worried about Oxycontin. They're worried about the epidemic of of heroin, and this is a public health crisis. But think about what happened uh, in the '80s and '90s, right? When there was when crack was ravaging our communities, and what was the response? Right? It wasn't empathy. It's interesting. You you don't talk as much about empathy and compassion as the instrument of change as you do actual policy. The way to change the habits of the heart, you say, is to enact policies that require right. change. I honestly believe that the moral argument right, uh, takes root, is given content right, in the way it, it's translated in, in, in policy. And so the idea of the value gap is this. Right? The idea is that the value gap distorts who we take ourselves to be. I think democracies require particular kinds of people. Democracies, if they're to work, require certain kinds of dispositions, people who are committed to a notion, a robust notion of the public good, a sense of connection with others, a sense of mutuality with others. What the value gap does, it distorts our characters. It disfigures who we take ourselves to be so that we can't be the kinds of people that democracies require. Uh, And so this is not about America living up to its ideals. That's, That's too abstract. It's about us becoming the kinds of people democracies demand. And we're only going to do that, right, by concrete action. You change your habits by not picking up the cigarette. You change your habits by placing your shoes in the same spot as opposed to waking up every morning trying to figure it out where they are, right? The wonderful thing about habits is that they're they're not permanent. They're plastic. But we have to do something. We have to do something deliberate in order to change them. And that we can only do that not by high-sounding, lofty appeals to principles, but by changing our day-to-day actions. So give me one example of what could be done specifically and concretely that would help change the habits of racism. Well, I think one of the things that we could do, just really clearly, is commit ourselves to uh, allowing every child in this country, every child, to experience uh, preschool, kindergarten, right? to be educated, because the data is clear. Right. That if you give children an opportunity right, to learn at early ages, that that becomes the way in which we can begin to address the education gap. That's one thing. Right. So one thing. Second thing, I think we could easily make public education. And I'm not sounding like I'm endorsing Bernie Sanders here, uh, but I think we should easily make public education free for everyone around the country, for everyone. Right. Begin to change the because the revolution of value involves what? 
changing our demand of government, changing our view of black people, and changing what ultimately matters. And we can do that in very small, small steps. And each small step becomes a huge step in my mind. So I remember growing up in East Texas, uh, attending public schools, using the public library, mm-hmm. uh, using the public parks, using the public swimming pool, which was segregated, going to a state university that was public and $40 a month tuition, driving down the public highways, stopping in a public park, using a public toilet. Uh, everything was public for me. My father never made more than $100 a month in his life, in, including the last month of his working days. But I never felt deprived because there were all these public resources. Right. Once black folks begin to enjoy the same access to those public facilities, public attitudes toward them changed. Yeah. No, that's absolutely right. Um, the fight over the swimming pool was after I left. I mean, in the 1950s, it was finally integrated. And when it did, the number of white kids using the public pool just plummeted. And think about all of the private schools that were founded right after ni- 1954. When Brown the Supreme Court issued uh, its decision, right. Brown versus Board of Education. And so this is the value gap. This is the value gap. See, when, when, if, when, we, think of, when we think of the issue of race in this country— uh, in in just simply these kind of easy kind of formulations that we just got to do better, uh, then we don't understand the depth of the problem, right? So we have to look the ugliness of who we have been and who we are squarely in the face if we're going to do this, if we're going to achieve our country, right? And in the interim, in the interim, I have to, and along with a whole bunch of other people, we have to raise our babies, They have to come of age uh, in a society that oftentimes views them as disposable. We have to do what my parents did for me, to give me the resources, the existential armor, to endure a society that we've just described. Thanks for listening. This was the first part of my conversation with Eddie Glaude, Jr., author of Democracy in Black, How Race Still Enslaves the American Soul. In part two, Professor Glaude calls for a radical reboot of democracy. We need to become traitors for democracy. And this is where your book really causes a lot of people to get nervous. (laughs) You call for what you call a blank-out campaign. What is that? The blank-out campaign? Um, This is when... In the 2016 election, we need to turn out in massive numbers and vote down ballot but leave the presidential ballot blank. We'll have that conversation for you soon, online and in our podcast feed. This podcast was produced by Gail Abloh and John Light. Go to BillMoyers.com where you can learn more about the team that collaborates on this series and read more news and analysis of issues we think are vital to our democracy. This podcast was a production of Public Square Media.